This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Today, Junior! If you're a loser, tune in and you'll be a winner. It's the Moranalytics Podcast. Talking Buffalo sports, Yankees, WWE, 80s music, and pop culture. And now, here's your host, Patrick Moran. What's up, podcast people? Feeling it today, man. Just feeling it. Welcome to the Moranalytics Podcast. Today is Monday. May 21st, 2018. I, of course, am Patrick Moran, the self-proclaimed podcaster to the stars. On today's show, I do have another star in the world of sports media. I'll be joined by New York Post lead sports columnist, Mike Vaccaro. Mike's been at the Post since 2002. And Mike's a two-time New York State Sports Writer of the Year. Guy's won over 50 major running awards in his career. I'm talking to him about his career, the New York media, and what it's like working in that crazy-ass environment that's New York City. We're also talking about three books he's written. They're all very good, by the way. We'll talk about those books, a little New York sports, and a lot more. I'll have that interview shortly. Before that, though, just like every Monday, I'm joined by my childhood buddy, Tone Pucks, for a little bit of our weekly Pat with Pucks conversation. In fact, you know what? Let's not waste any time today. Let's get right down to business. Here's Pat with Pucks, immediately followed by my interview with Mike Vaccaro. Pat with Pucks. To the victor belongs to sports. Why don't you get the fuck out of here before I shove your quotations book up your fat fucking ass? The customer is usually a moron and an asshole. Okay, a simple wrong would have done just fine, but then... All right, so that's just been going around the internet all week. Laurel and Yanny. I went a good maybe two days without listening to it, but I just couldn't stand hearing everyone else's take on it. And at the end of the day, I'm a follower. I'm not a leader. So I gave in and I listened. Clearly, to me at least, I'm Team Laurel. What do you got? Also Team Laurel, even though I, I think it's possible that the whole thing is just a mind game and somehow the recording switches uh, like every third uh, every third time. <laughs> but I, I, I've got Laurel in what I personally find to be the least interesting Twitter debate possibly ever. It is. I mean, God, it's so stupid. But it's the big trend. That's the way it is nowadays, I guess. Sure, yeah. yeah. I guess. Speaking of trendy, I know you. Did you get up at 5 o'clock in the morning and watch the Royal Wedding? 
I, I did not get up at five o'clock in the morning. However, I was I was woken up probably somewhere around seven or eight a.m. I think it was to the sounds of, and it, it was kind of hilarious. My my girlfriend was like arguing, is is you know finger quotes around arguing with uh, her two year old foster child. I hear you've got the TV seven hours a week. I just want to watch this royal wedding. So I, that's what I woke up to. And uh, I came down and caught a little bit of it. And I'm glad I did, man. You know, those Brits, they're, they're classy. It's, it's, uh, and, and I do believe that the cultural significance of it as well with a, uh, a biracial princess and, and the world seeing that. Luke Russert had a fabulous tweet on it. I would just do anything for that guy to, to get into politics one day. But I, I do think there was significance. I do think there was entertainment value behind it. And I enjoyed the uh, the 10 or 15 minutes that I spent on it before I started doing sports stuff. I'm just going to leave it there. I got no interest in it, and I'll take your <laughs> word for it. I really don't. I just don't. I, wanted, I do want to talk a couple things here today before we get to my interview with Mike Vaccaro. I want to talk about the Bills in, in this regard. Look, since we launched in February, pretty much on a weekly basis, we've talked about the draft, free agency, and quarterback. And for very obvious reasons, you know, quarterback is everything to this team right now, especially once Tyrod got dumped. It exclusively became about quarterback. But you know what? Now the draft's over. Now the roster's really taking shape. I'm sure they might add a couple pieces, you know, throughout the summer, free agency, guys get cut, you know, low-key guys coming in. But for the most part, the roster on this team is is set. How are you feeling about the roster right now going forward? Because I'm, I'm going to give the mic to you first. I really like the shape this team appears to be in going forward in terms of not just talent, but the way the team is set up um, financially, salary cap wise, going forward into the future. I really like the makeup of this team right now. I do too. Uh, and I do like the flexibility that they appear to have financially. Um, I think it'll serve them well, obviously uh, in the years to come, but you know, they've, they've left themselves a little room, you know, during what's left of this off season as well to plug some holes that I think we all feel like they need plugging wide receiver uh, certainly comes to mind. You know, this past week there was a, uh, a day that uh, the local radios spent on the wide receiver position and, and what exactly is going to shake free in free agency next year uh, when the bills have all this money. And I, I just, I find that to be an exercise in futility to trying to do that, trying to project um, free agency in the coming years, you know, when the bills have the, uh, the money to spend, you have no idea who else is going to is going to shake free? Which of those free agents are going to sign? So to try to look ahead and talk about free agent classes and how they mesh with the Bills, you know, current roster depth and roster needs and things like that, I think is um, is just very very premature. And you know, I want to live so much in the now that the only thing I'm really thinking of. Is uh, is this coming minicamp? Because I think, or I should say OTAs, I think is 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 what they call it. Because this one is is still quote unquote involuntary or voluntary. Voluntary, yep. 
Yeah, yeah, I'll get it right one of these days. <laughs> and I think it's interesting, man. I think there's storylines coming into it, starting at the top. Everybody wants to uh, probably get a feel for how many reps uh, Josh Allen's going to get. I want to see how they split the reps between Peterman and McCarron. Obviously, um, you know, things, reps and 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 uh, depth charts and things of that nature will change quite a few times between now and actual training camp. But it gives you some early insight into whether or not these guys are going to give a true competition or whether someone's going in with the expectation of being the starter and they would need to be unseated. And no place is that more interesting to me than a quarterback. I agree. And, you know, I'm starting to come around a little bit to the possibility that Josh Allen could end up winning this job sooner than later, even though he's perceived by most as being not NFL ready right now. You could look at it this way, too. It's like, well, it could be there for the taking for Josh Allen this year. I'm starting to come around to that. And it's something that about a month ago, I was like, there's no way. In fact, that was probably one of my biggest complaints is like, why would the Bills waste a top 10 pick on a guy who's not going to play this year? But then again, the Chiefs pretty much did that with Mahomes last year. Let me ask you this, though. And this is what I was kind of referring to when, when I really liked the shape of this team. The way it's structured is they can go into next year, 2019, without, you know, naming guys. Because you're right. That's absolutely ridiculous to start projecting who's going to be a free agent next year, a year ahead of time. That's crazy but they're going to have flexibility to really go in any direction that they want to go into. They're already going to be, I think like maybe among the top five teams in the NFL when it comes to having cap space next year. And that doesn't include, by the way, Jerry Hughes, who he's due to make 10.4 million next year. Unless he's a stud this year, you can say goodbye to him. This is going to be his last year. McCoy's going to be 30 years old and he's got almost 10 million against the cap for 2019. So that cap thing will expand even more. They're eating a lot of cap space this year with guys like Cordy Glenn and Tyrod Taylor and Marcel Darius and stuff like that. But I really am starting to appreciate and like the job that Brandon Bean and Sean McDermott have done setting this organization up to be good for quite a while. I uh, I mean, I, I'm st- I'm pondering the, uh, the Hughes and, and McCoy thing, and I'm thinking what is more valuable in my mind anyways, you know, the skill of a player just starting to decline or the $10 million respectively for each one of those guys. And I would almost say that with the, with the cap flexibility, I'd, I'd rather have the guys, even if, even if it's inflated a a little bit, but to your point, yeah, they're going to have the money and they're going to have, a nucleus. And that is what they seem to be building right now with, you know, their guys, quote unquote, um, you know, from, from the recent draft class, whether it's Dawkins and, uh, and Trey white last year, uh, the quarterback and, and Edmonds this year and guys like Poyer and Hyde and, and, you know, those, those second level free agent, uh, pickups that they've had. And those guys become, your core, and then you add your splash signings in free agency. And that is the way to do it. If you count on your splashes to to change, to be your culture, 
then I think you're doing it wrong. And what these guys have done is they have they they have built from the ground level with with depth. Matt Milano is another guy, you know. And then you add the splash pieces, but there is some relevance to the conversation of just how often now in today's current NFL are splash pieces becoming available because the cap just goes up and up and up. And despite a a few instances where teams are mismanaging it, most teams are starting to get it right. Okay. A lot of uh, teams went into this off season with a boatload of money and it's probably going to become the new norm. And now you're going to find yourself in stiff competition for what might be uh, a bit of a watered-down market. So that worries me a little bit. You know, I, I just, I, I, I do, again, while I think it's futile to look ahead at specifically who those players are, there is still, you know, where there's smoke, there's fire, and there still is some reason to believe that the, um, uh, you know, that the market is not going to be uh, what it's been in, in years past when teams are, are, you know, weren't spending as smart. I want to be clear about something when I mentioned McCoy and, and Hughes. If this is their last year in Buffalo, I don't think it's going to be a straight salary cap dump. They're not going to be in any type of position where it's like, oh, this guy's going to make $10 million next year. We got, got to get rid of him now. It's more of, on the side with Hughes, I don't know. It just, there's just something that in my gut that tells me that he's not long for this team. I, I just, I don't know all the defensive ends they've signed during the, you know, during free agency and stuff like that. There's just something about him that screams to me. He falls in line with a lot of the guys that they got rid of over the past year or so talented players, you know, guys like Watkins and Glenn and Tyrod and Raglan, but just guy Darby, just guys who just don't seem to fit in long here. I could be wrong about him. And with McCoy, it's just, you know, it's a matter of his age. It's going to be another full season of wear and tear on his body. $10 million is a lot of money to pay a running back who's going to be, what's it going to be? I know he's going to at least be 30, if not 31 at the end of next year. So that's what I meant by, it could be their swan song here. And if Charles Clay doesn't have a better year, you know, he's due a big cap figure too next year. It could be the end of the road for him too. But that's what I, you know, I keep circling back to. What I really love about the organization is, they could easily keep all three of those guys, no problem. You know what I mean? Because they're going to have the cap space without a lot of bad contracts on this roster beyond the dead cap space that they're going to eat a lot of money this year, that they could do a lot of different things and go a lot of different ways when this season's over. I want them to find a way to go get Julio Jones so bad, dude. <laughs> and so, I mean, we're sitting here talking about money and, and, and uh, you know, the, the previous conversation a, a, a little bit about uh, receiver. I just, you know, if he's not happy with his current contract, and uh, and and you know they they spent a first on a receiver this year. They 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 spent pretty good money on Mohamed Sanu last year. It's it's hard to believe that he would ever shake free. But oh my God, if there was ever uh, a, a chance to land a player of that caliber you spend as much money as you, especially when you've got a quarterback on his rookie contract, you go nuts there. You just go nuts uh, there. It's really precarious with this team right now because they are 
<laughs> you know, there's so much shit that's happened during this offseason with guys, you know, leaving and the quarterback, you know, Josh Allen, and that's dominated the headlines and things like that. You know, the Russ Brandon stuff, it's hard to, or it's easy to forget that sometimes, you know, this is a team, this is a fucking playoff team. This is a team that made the playoffs last year. We haven't been able to say that in 17 years. This is a playoff team, but yet they're a team that most people expect to take a step back this year, which by the way, I don't necessarily buy that, but they, you know, and then they're a team that's set up for the future. It's almost like they didn't make the playoffs last year. Do you kind of feel like that sometimes? Absolutely. I think people are just kind of ignoring the fact that they made the playoffs. And I don't know that I blame people for doing that because, you know, it, how good were they really? How good were they? To me, they, they were the epitome of that team that could go anywhere between, you know, seven and nine and nine and seven. And they just ended up on the very fortuitous end of that. So I think I think that's some of it. Uh, and I think McDermott will play that up. They did it last year when the expectations of, of the, the national and local uh, media was, was not very high. They'll do it again this year. But I think beyond, you know, what people feel about the, you know, the broader side uh, of the, of the roster, I think the main reason people are going against you know, a repeat performance by the Bills this year is because they feel as though the quarterback had a lot to do with the playoff appearance. And I think people in, in Buffalo who followed the team closely could uh, argue that that might not be entirely true. Right. But it's true enough, okay? He got he got us a couple games. You know, do, do we get to 9-7 to and seven? With AJ McCarron last year, I think I think it's probably not. But we've had this conversation. I, I I think it. I think the position is going to be downgraded. You think the position is going to be potentially upgraded? If not, you just you firmly think that. Um, and I think a lot of people out there are also thinking that Josh Allen is going to see the field a lot this year, and people aren't terribly high on him. So I, I would I would venture to guess that most of the, you know, of the buzz of the Bills, you know, being a, a, a potential top five draft pick next year is is centered around the quarterback position. And the rest of it ain't bad. The rest of this roster isn't bad. The defense might be, again, I think the defense has the potential to be lights out. And if they're well coached on offense, they could easily repeat next year. Absolutely they can. Absolutely they can. This defense is going to be good. I'm telling you right now, they are going to be good. McDermott's a great, if nothing else, he's a great defensive coach. And they got more talent than they did last year on defense. I don't even think it's close. It ultimately and absolutely comes down to quarterback play. And real quick, I mean, we you kind of touched on it, but I'm going to ask you this. When it comes to quarterback, and this is entirely premature and early, but I mean, fuck, you're talking about OTA, so I might as well ask this question too. Do you think that Josh Allen is going to have a legitimate chance to start from day one as a rookie? No, I don't. <laughs> I, I think, uh, I think they're going to hold him back a, a, a little bit. And I think, 
you know, going into this process with him before it was the Bills, everybody felt like he needed the time, you know? And, and now, now it's just because it's new and it's the shiny new toy and who the hell really wants to talk about A.J. McCarron and Nate Peterman, people want to give uh, the idea that he starts – you know, they, they want to give it some legs. I, I still don't think it has any. And I'll tell you what might be a, a fun little debate is which player do you think, let's leave A.J. McCarron out of it. And let me just ask you this, and I think you know my answer. Which player, which quarterback do you think is more likely to start for the Buffalo Bills this year? Jake Allen or or Josh Allen, excuse me, or... Or Nate Peterman. Between the two, Josh Allen. I don't think he has any chance to start. The only way he starts is if A.J. McCarron suffers some kind of injury and Josh Allen's just really raw and really bad early on in camp in the preseason and he's not ready. That's the only scenario, I think, where Peterman sees the field at all. I think Peterman and McCarron will have an even number of reps in this coming weeks OTAs and I think that will be the story from the OTAs is that there is a legitimate quarterback competition that involves Nathan Peterman. Look man, I started uh these podcast contributions on that stump and I lost a, a little momentum, okay, when McCarron became the the signing instead of an aging bet, but to me, it's still the same thing. And, you know, it's 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 very possible that your 2018 starting quarterback is is Nate Peterman. I'm 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 back to that, and um I probably won't come off of it until I'm proven uh wrong in uh in training camp repetitions. And look, you know, maybe maybe this coming mini camp uh or OTAs this week, it'll go uh, you know. Five reps for McCarron, three for Allen, two for Peterman. And, you know, my theory is is shot to hell, um, you know, within 48 hours here. I don't think so, though. I think the reps will be split. I think it'll be uh, a story. And I think it's a very winnable job for any one of the quarterbacks. Fair enough. I at least, if nothing else... I admire you for your conviction. I'll give you that with this whole Peterman thing. I don't agree, but I admire your conviction when it comes to him. Let's go across town real quick. I want to talk about the Sabres for a minute, which is you know sort of a rarity at this point on this podcast. But I have to because Gord Miller, uh, a Canadian sportscaster, said this past week during an interview, he, he dropped a line that said the Sabres may be a realistic option for New York Islanders, free agent to be John Tavares. First of all, I'll ask you this. Do you buy it? No. You know, I didn't I didn't buy it when we uh we spent about 48 hours on uh on talk radio um licking our chops over it. And I bought it even less when Darren Drager came on uh on Friday and and shot the whole thing down. I don't buy it in terms of the Sabres being a favorite, but I think we will at least get to that point where we've got some 
excitement about the idea that uh, that he might give us a visit or or something like that. But the, the idea that uh, um, that it was predicated on the Sabers getting the first, uh, you know, the first overall pick, that was that was a, that was a bit of a reach. I think I think uh, Gord Miller just wanted to grab uh, grab a headline or two. I think that not only is there a zero percent chance that it happens. I think there's a 0% chance from a Buffalo's perspective that it should happen. I think it's a terrible idea. That's not to say that Tavares is not a great hockey player because he is. That's the last thing, in my opinion anyway, that this organization needs right now is to go out and sign a high-profile, very highly expensive forward. I mean, you look at the roster, and it's already been ridden over the past few years with bad contracts that they're stuck with. They're not in great shape when it comes to the cap. And they got a lot of guys over the next one to three years that they need to worry about trying to, you know, lock up a nucleus for the future. How are they going to do that if they're giving this guy, I don't know, eight, nine, ten, more than $10 million a year? You got guys like uh, Middlestad, you know, he's brand new, but he's only got two years left before he becomes a restricted free agent. Sam Reinhart already is a restricted free agent now. I know you're not as high on him as some other people are, but the guy did score 25 goals next year. So there's no, and they let Kane go. So there's no question in my mind that they're looking to lock him up. A guy like uh, Jake McCabe, for an example, he's only got one more year left on his deal. He becomes a free agent. Maybe this is the year that he takes that next step, which we've been waiting for for two years. That hasn't happened, but you know, maybe that happens this year. Darlene, you know, they're going to have him and, you know, Gooley and some of those other young kids, they gotta if they want to build a team that's gonna last for the future, you ain't doing that by signing guys like John Tavares to, you know, a crazy contract. You know, they're stuck with Ocposo at six million a year for like, I think what, the next like five years. They would have to probably trade Ryan O'Reilly at a minimum to have any chance to be able to afford Tavares. Just not sure that it's a great idea. <laughs> Let me ask you this too. You know, you got Eichel and you got Middlestat. You you have O'Reilly for now. Let's just say that they went out and they tried to get someone like Tavares, who's he going to skate with? And if he skates with the best players, who's Middlestack going to skate with? This team, you know, they lack good wingers right now. So you're going to pay this guy all this money. Who the, who the hell is he going to skate with? You you basically just gave, like, Billy Madison's uh, final answer in the academic competition, in my opinion. <laughs> you know. What you just said is one of the most insanely idiotic things I have ever heard. Everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to it. May God have mercy on your soul. No, man, look, I'm just going to disagree with that. I think Tavares is a bonafide superstar in the prime of his career. Uh, If any team that can get their hands on him and overpay for him is going to do it, and they're going to work around their current cap situation. Well, do that uh, then. Do that then. You play Jason Botterill right now. You're going to go out and you're going to commit to getting John Tavares. How are you making that work? Well, you're trading O'Reilly and Risto. Uh, that's what you're doing. You know, you're O'Reilly's uh, whatever, seven and change. Risto's five and some change. That's how I'm getting them, you know, right there. And you're right. Guys like Middlestat and Reinhardt are coming up and, and you know, there'll be others. But Botterill... It, of all people, okay, knows the blueprint for how you do it because he did it with Malkin and Crosby 
for all those years. And that is, you know, a, a way that a lot of teams are building now, you know, uh, two, three studs, you know, throw Latang in there uh, as it relates to, you know, to Pittsburgh. And then, you you know, you fill in the back end with the kids. So if anyone is, um, and Jack, you know, is not, Jack's going to be a bargain in about three or four years once these contracts, once Tavares resets the bar. So it's doable. I, I, I mean, you know, I don't think it's going to happen because I don't think Tavares is going to choose Buffalo. But I think Buffalo will take a run at him. I think Buffalo would be wise to take a run at him. And I think Jason Botterill could could figure it all out. And it and it starts and maybe even ends with, uh, with O'Reilly and and Risto, who some people think might be uh, tradable assets even without, uh, you know, Tavares being in the conversation. So we'll have to agree to disagree there. I, I think John Tavares in, in a Buffalo Sabres uniform would be a freaking dream. I'll give you this much. I do think that despite their big contracts, that O'Reilly and Ristolainen are tradable. Now, some guys like, you know, like obviously Molson, or a guy like Ocposo with his contract, you know, he's got five more years at six million a year. I don't think he's tradable. I will say that a guy like Risto, you know, he's at 5.4 million. I'm looking at the cap figures right now. He'll have some value. They might not get a good haul back for him per se, but if the object is to, to uh, shed salary and create cap room, he's tradable. And so is Ryan O'Reilly at seven and a half a year. That's a lot of money, but you know what? He's proven it when he's playing right now. In, with Canada in the world, you know, it's put him with good players and he's a good player. You know what I mean? He's not the kind of guy who's going to carry a team with shitty wingers. If you put fucking Ryan O'Reilly with Scott Wilson and Benoit Polier all season, you're going to get the, <laughs> you're going to get the kind of year that you got from him. You know what I mean? He's not going to carry guys to, to greatness, but if you put him with guys who are very good, he's a very good player. So it would be, listen, Again, John Tavares is an elite talent. I just don't see the logic, unless you could trade these guys, see the logic in committing that kind of cap space to a team that doesn't have good wingers to play with them. I mean, I'll give you, Ocposo and Reinhardt have talent. Who else on this organization right now has any talent on the as a forward, as a wing? Middlestat's a third setter. You know, this guy's the eighth, what was he, the eighth pick of the draft? Who the fuck's he going to play with? Who's he going to skate with? You're going to take your guy and put him with a 75-year-old Jason Pominville and Jordan Nolan or whoever? You know what I mean? I, In my opinion, just keep building the team. Get younger. Draft well. Make a couple good trades. I love Tavares. And I, I think it's, listen, we could sit there for an hour and argue about him. I agreed with the first point you made. It's a moot point. Dude is not coming here. He's just not going to Buffalo. It's not going to happen. No, I think that is the uh, I think that is the the long and short of it, man. But uh, it was it was fun to think about. And look, it'll be thought about again. It'll be talked about again. You know, we're we're a two sport town, and and God forbid, you know, at least uh, on the on the local side of things, you know, we we branch out and talk about you know baseball or basketball for more than more than five minutes in this city. Um, so trust me, the Tavares conversation will come up again and it'll probably gain some momentum again at some point. Um, but I do think ultimately, if if you're foolish enough to get your hopes up on it, your hopes will be dashed. But that doesn't mean 
you know, that, that Jason Botterill is not going to improve this this roster just because he doesn't improve it with, um, you know, with a big splash. The dude's got a ton of work to do. And when the offseason starts, man, it's going to it's, it's going to be fun. It, it, it really is um, just to watch him work, you know, just to see who. Uh, you know, after one year of of a thorough review of his organization, you know, at all levels, who is part of the problem um, and, ha- you know, ultimately who was part of the problem over these underachieving past two or three years. I'm really interested to see what at least Jason Botterill's answers are to those questions. So I, I hope we spend you know, some time on those during the uh, during the down weeks of, of football, because I believe the Sabres roster reshaping is going to be a fun topic. All right. We're going to wrap this up for this week. Before we do, though, I got to I got to give a little shout out to my nephew, Jordan Williams. He's a rookie wide receiver with the Albany Empire in the Arena Football League team owned by Ron Jaworski, by the way. Scored his first professional touchdown last night, caught a 25-yard touchdown pass. Got, not only did he score, but I got to watch him from Florida on TV on CBS Sports Network. Pretty awesome. So I just wanted to give a shout-out to my nephew. You got anyone you want to give a shout-out to? No. <laughs> Wouldn't have it any other way. All right, Tone Pucks. Talk to you next week. And here's my interview with Mike Vaccaro of the New York Post. <laughs> My guest today has been the lead sports columnist at the New York Post since 2002. Since the start of his career, he's won over 50 major writing awards. He's also the author of three books, which we will touch on. I am talking about Mike Vaccaro. How you doing, Mike? Thanks for taking some time and talking to me today. Hey, Pat. Great to talk to you today, too. I'll tell you what. I always look forward to getting an opportunity to talk to anyone who has upstate New York, western New York ties. So I'm pumped to talk to you about that. You grew up in Long Island, correct? Nassau County? That's right. Yep, West Hempstead. Yeah, but you went to St. Bonaventure in 1985. What made you decide to go to Bonna for college, and were there other schools that you considered? Well, I find this funny because I had, uh, I, I, my, my parents had actually sent a deposit to Dayton, so I, I was actually, I, I, I turned in about uh, five or six extra NCAA bits in my time. <laughs> Dayton has had a little more success than Bonaventure has, and, in the Atlantic 10, but, uh, no, you know, I, 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 I first became aware of Bonaventure because I was a big St. John's basketball fan as a kid. My senior year, they played, uh, the Bonnies and the Johnnies played at Alumni Hall. It was the year the Johnnies went to the final four and actually Niagara won it being in a couple of weeks later, but, uh, uh, Bonnies took them to the wire. They lost by a point. And I'm like, what's St. Bonaventure all about? And, you know, it was after that that I kind of learned about their journalism program and, uh, you know, one thing leads to another, and I went to visit it. Uh, I visited St. Bonaventure the same day that Gary Carter hit the opening day home run in 1985. Oh, wow. Uh, to kind of a famous moment in Methodist history. I watched that, that home run from, a, from across the street at the uh, the Castle Hotel. So uh, I, I figured a lot of my worlds kind of kind of, kind of melded that day. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I, went, I went and visited the campus, fell in love with it. And, you know, I fell in love with it on a day, obviously, in April that was warm and not snowy. But, uh, <laughs> You know, it wasn't. You know, I grew up on Long Island. I didn't grow up in, uh, in in Miami, so it wasn't like I wasn't used to snow on the ground. So it was, uh, it was a great four years. It's been a great uh, life after that as a 
as a pretty proud and happy alum. Yeah. And, you know, as an alum, it had to be a real source of pride for you to be able to watch the Bonnies not only play well this year, but get to the NCAA tournament. And not only that, they knock off UCLA in the first game. That had to be great uh, for you to be able to experience that. Yeah, it really was, Pat. I mean, look, I, I, I experienced some, some mediocre teams and I went to school there. My Actually, my first job out of school was at the OAN Times Herald. And so I covered the bodies for two years when they were just terrible. They were uh, eight and 20 one year and five and 23 one year. And obviously there've been some really bad years subsequently, but, uh, but it really is. I mean, I've always been a guy who's, who's just been delighted for them to be competitive. Um, cause I, cause I, cause I remember very starkly what it was like when they were non-competitive. And so it's always been kind of, you know, especially since March from the coach, I've been, you know, real happy to watch just how competitive they've been, how, you know, they, they, they get after teams and, you know, really play with a, with a, a, a real source of pride. And, and obviously the last four years, especially have been, have been something special because they've been uh, in the hunt every year. And, and uh, this year when they went on that winning streak, it was just, uh, it was really something more than you could possibly have asked for. And, uh, you know, pretty funny story on selection Sunday, basically my wife kicked me out of the house because she told me she couldn't put up with me and my neurotic rants until, until the selection <laughs> show. So, with nowhere else to go, as they say in the opening of the of the, of the odd couple, I uh, hopped in the car and drove the five and a half hours to bottom entry so I could be on campus for the announcement. And uh, was actually lucky enough because I do know Coach Schmidt a little bit. He invited me into the room with the team when they got the announcement. So that was a that was a pretty cool moment. Wow, that's awesome! I never knew that. Let's backtrack a little bit, going back to your time at Bana. That's where you like first got your foot in the door when it comes to journalism. You got an internship at the Only End Times Herald. How instrumental was that for you in what ultimately would become your career? Yeah, it was everything, you know, because you know one of the great things about going to Bonaventure is that it's a small school. If you, know, if, you, if, you, if you arrive there knowing what you want to do, you have a lot of opportunities to do everything. And that's really what I did at Bonaventure. I mean, I, I literally did everything you could possibly get your hands on, whether it was sports information or the campus radio station. I was editor of the paper. I strung for the Times Herald. I strung a couple of times for the Buffalo News. And ultimately got an internship at the Times Herald that, 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 that really kind of sparked my career. I had a great, you know, one of the great summer internships of all time where basically, you know, the editor called me and he said, look, I'm going to send you out every day and you got to come back with a story. And I don't care what the story is. It's just got to be, you know, good. And that was my, that was my internship for three months in the summer of 1988. And it was really you know, just it, it was the final, uh, I guess, piece of evidence that uh, that, that I had chosen to clear I really wanted because I, you know, I lived in that newsroom and loved being in that newsroom. And, um, and that had come after a year of being the editor of the student paper. So it was really a, a great time for me to, to really kind of get an understanding of what I wanted to do. And, and going to Bonaventure with all of the opportunities that it afforded me, you know, really allowed me to kind of hit the ground running. So after college, you get hired by the Times-Herald. You worked there for about two years. Then you get hired at a newspaper in Fayetteville, Arkansas. What went into that decision to go to, to Fayetteville? Yeah, you know what? I, I guess I was going to go one of two ways. I mean, I always, I always knew in the back of my mind I wanted to get back home to New York City. So, of course, you're asking yourself, so how in the world do I in Fayetteville, Arkansas? Well, after, uh, you know, 20 or so uh you know, letters to uh, various uh, sports editors in the New York area one and answered um, an opportunity presented itself to become a sports editor in Fayetteville. Uh, at age 24, I was the youngest sports editor in the country. I had no idea what I was doing from that standpoint. 
but because it's a small paper, in fact, it was smaller than the Times Herald, I was, you know, essentially, the, uh, I was actually given, uh, given free reign to cover the University of Arkansas and the Southeastern Conference, and that was a blast. I did that for two years. Um, you know, the, the sports editor part of the job wasn't all that great, but you know, traveling with the Hogs uh, all across the SEC uh, was a, was was a real experience. Uh, and writing columns five or six times a week was a tremendous learning experience uh, that I still draw upon all these years later. So, um, yeah, you know, it was it, it was kind of a you know, it was sort of an example of somebody being well out of his comfort zone because, you know, I was a Northeast kid, specifically I was a New York kid, and, and uh, to spend two years in Fayetteville, that was, uh, you know, I probably have a sitcom in me from those two years there that I could probably write at some point because it, uh, it was a really interesting uh, period of my life. But uh, I, met, I met my wife there, so that was, that was great. And, you know, I really kind of picked up a lot of my writing chops there as well. I read somewhere, I can't remember where, but I read somewhere, I'm not sure if it was that job or another one, but you once got fired from a job. And what I read is that you considered it one of the best things that ever happened to you in the end. Explain that. Was it this job? Yeah, it it was this job. And it absolutely was the best thing that ever happened to me. Um, Of course, you wouldn't have have been able to get me to to admit that on June 15th, 1993, which is the day the axe fell on me. Right. you know what I mean? But I mean, look, I mean, the long story is that I really, I, I, I just got kind of grown frustrated with being a sports editor. I didn't want to be a boss. I didn't want, I wanted to write, wanted to report, you know, and, and uh, increasingly that job was, was, was asking me to be what I wasn't, which was, you know, a boss, a management type, middle management. I was terrible at that job. Wasn't a great detail guy about that. And I'll admit that, but I was, you know, I'll be the first person to admit that I wasn't a great, uh, a great detail guy, which you got to be if you're going to be a sports editor. And that was, uh, that was tough, but you know what? It gave me the push, the, the, the kick in the butt I needed to get back East to kind of, you know, kind of, I guess, reapply myself to be what I wanted to be, which was a writer and a reporter and ultimately a columnist. And, uh, I was lucky enough to get a second chance after that. And, you know, it, it also keeps you grounded, you know, I mean, it's, when, when, when you aren't really fully cognizant of the consequences of either bad performance or bad attitude or a bad relationship, I don't know that, 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 that that's necessarily helpful. I think that it's always in the back of my mind to appreciate what I have and the jobs that I have uh, because it was taken away from me once. And I don't really ever want to go through that again if I can help it. And so for all those reasons, it was, it was really a, a seminal moment in my life, sure. Sure. Now you went on and you worked at the Middletown Times Herald record in New York, the Kansas City Star, and then the New York Star Ledger before landing at the New York Post in 2002, ultimately. What brought you to the Post in 2002? How was that process? Well, it was, you know, it's, it's like I tell, uh, you know, aspiring journalists, you know, students who seek my opinion out. And, you know, I think sometimes they think that I was born as a sports column at the New York Post and I have to kind of go through my, as you, you, know, as you just did, my fairly extensive and right. multi-paged and multi-layered re- resume. Um, but it's a, uh, it's a uh, you know, it, it was a dream of mine from the time I was a little kid. I mean, my father used to bring home the post from work on the train. That's the paper that I kind of grew up on and cut my teeth on in terms of reading it. You know, and the daily news also, but it was just, I mean, the post happened to be the paper, it was an afternoon paper at the time that my father brought home with him. So I was kind of always 
sort of familiar with it and always sort of aware of it. Um, I, I put in about four years at the Star Ledger in Newark. It was a great experience there. I worked with great people there. Uh, but it was, you know, an opportunity arose in November of 2002 where I interviewed the Post and they offered me the job. And, you know, as I told the editor of the Star Ledger, who himself had been the editor of the Daily News several years before that, you know, I, I think this is just not a job I can I, I, I can turn down. And he understood that because he was a New York guy who had spent his time in, at, the, at the Daily News. He's like, hey, if you don't take that job, you know, you'll probably ask yourself the rest of your life, what uh, what if? And uh, so, you know, I, I, I made that move. It's been, you know, 16 years now almost. And it's been uh, it's been a glory ride. It's amazing how fast it's gone. But it's been a it's been as you know, everything as enjoyable as you, you might imagine. And. You know, really, when you think about it, how many kids know from the time they're seven years old exactly what they want to be, and they want to be that. I mean, my dad said to bring home the post when I was a kid, and I said, you know, I want that job. I want to be Steve Serby. I want to be Jerry Eisenberg. I want to be Larry Merchant. And here I am with the same job those guys, you know, have had. Sure. Now, let me ask you this question. It's, I have a lot of sports writers and columnists on the show, so therefore, I get a lot of people who listen who are aspiring writers themselves. What do you think goes into being a great columnist? Because, you know, we live in a world now of instant hot takes. That's the way the world is. And to be a great columnist, I, I feel like you need to be more than just a hot take machine. Yeah, I, I, look, I, I think that if you're going to be, a, you know, any kind of, of media person, I think it always comes grounded in being a good reporter first. I think that's the, old, that's the primary skill you have to have. You have to hone being curious, being inquisitive. And getting your questions answered. I mean, you know, one of my best friends at Bonaventure and throughout the rest of my life has been Adrian Wojnarowski. And, you know, there's there, there, there probably aren't three better reporters in the world than him, certainly not in the sports world. And he and I have talked about this many, many times about, you know, what it takes to, to be successful in, 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 in the jobs you've been fortunate enough to have. And, you know, having a having an understanding of of, 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 of wanting to have a lot of sources in your, in your, uh, in your phone, having people you can call about things. So you're not always writing 30,000 feet. You're not always you know, presenting hot takes. We do live in a hot take world, but you know, you get so many of those on talk radio and gosh, anybody who's got a, a computer or a Twitter feed has the opportunity to, to give you the hottest takes of the day. Sure. <clears throat> I mean, if you want to actually make a living at it, you've got to be, 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 be you can go beyond that. You've got to have an opinion for sure. You've got to have a point of view. And certainly those are all things that go into the column, but I think that reporting is the is, is the groundwork for all good column writing, and then being able to write. And you know, I think I think those are both things that can actually uh, be improved upon. I think I think you can learn how to be a better writer. It's like a muscle, you know, it's like a bicep or a tricep. You mm -hmm. can develop it through repetition, through reps. But reporting is something that just is, is a matter of, of being willing to work hard. And I think that uh, if that's uh, you know, you can you can definitely improve yourself as a reporter if that's what you choose to be. Um, and it takes a lot of work, and it takes a lot of slam doors and hung up phones and time and dead ends. But uh, you know, it's it's also the basis for all, all all the good journalism there is in the world. You write a ton of columns. More often than not, I assume on a deadline. You've also written three books, and I'll put a description and links to each of those, like Amazon links in the show notes here. I guess my question is. Well, two questions. What was the inspiration to start writing books for you? And with that process, how would God's name, were you able to find the time to do that? 
Well, I've always known that I had uh, that I wanted to be an author in addition to a columnist, and it's it's great because you know when you write a column, you write in these seven hundred, eight hundred word bursts, and when you're writing a book, I mean, you know, ultimately you have to sometimes sit down and write four or five thousand words in a sitting, and those are two different disciplines, and I think that doing both of them actually help you in both regards. Um, and it's, uh, you know, it's, it, you know, all, all three of the books I've written have been pleasurable experiences. I, that's a fortunate thing for me. I know, I know, I know plenty of people who have written books and they've been very dark experiences. I've been fortunate that every time I've had an opportunity to write a book, it's been a, it's, it's been a positive experience for me. You know, I, I was really always just searching for that first subject. And I remember, you know, covering the Yankees Red Sox series of 2003, and you know, kind of like the moment after Aaron Boone's ball ended in the in the in the grandstand for a home run, I I was talking to my literary agent and said, "How about a Yankees Red Sox book?" And you know, it was it, it was the most talked about story of the time then of the era, and I was able to put that into a, into a historical context and and write that book. And I you know, I've got a wonderful relationship with Doubleday, the editor there, Jason Kaufman. Has another uh, client of some renown, Dan Brown, <laughs> of the Da Vinci Code fame. So it's uh, mm-hmm. it's uh, it, I, it's, it, it, it's it's always nice to know that uh, that uh, that uh, he's reading my stuff and also you know occasionally reading Dan Brown stuff too. Um, but I've had a great relationship with Dan. I, I I have taken a bit of a respite from it because I did write three books in six years and that was a grind. And one of the things that I've been fortunate enough, as I said earlier, is that I've written books that I've really cared about, subjects that really matter to me. You know, really what I'm doing now is spending is trying to figure out what that next project is. I, I want to be able to devote as much energy to that as I did to the first three books. And you're right, sometimes it is hard. I, I did need to take the next the last five or six years off from doing both because, you know, I, I just wanted to focus on the column because it's, uh, it is what, what ultimately pays my mortgage for the most part. And, uh, and I wanted to, to kind of develop that craftsmanship as well as I could. Now, those three books, and again, I'm going to have links in the in the show episode here, Emperors and Idiots. That's a book about the rivalry, be a hundred year rivalry between the Red Sox and the Yankees, 1941, yep. the greatest year in sports. And of course the first fall classic. And, you know, I'm reading the book description here, the Red Sox, the Giants and the cast of players, pugs and politicals who reinvented the world series in 1912. Now these are all your babies. It's kind of like asking someone, you know, do you love one son more than the other? But of these three, is there one that you have a little bit more, you know, some kind of special bond with? Yeah, it's a fair question. I actually do have an answer for it because I do, uh, you know, the, the, the 1941 book was a book that was entirely kind of almost the brainchild of conversations I had with my father growing up and kind of learning about, you know, his world growing up and what sports meant to him. And uh, I recall, you know, really that that, that was one seedling for the book. The other one was an elevator ride I took with Phil Rizzuto at the 2001 World Series where he was talking about how much New York had embraced the Yankees in baseball, you know, kind of as a way to just forget about what was happening, you know, in in the wake of September 11th. And he said he reminded him of his rookie year of 1941, he said, because, you know, he said in that year you read the sports page because you were afraid of what you were going to find on the front page every day. Wow. And it was based on that. It was it was it was it was it was a great book to research. You know, I said I said in the preface of that book that I felt like I'd been writing it all my life in some ways. Um, you know, I, I the, the research was fun. I mean, I spent basically three months reading uh, every issue of the New York Times from 1941 cover to cover. And when you do that, you realize just how ominous the world must have felt in 1941. A draft was going on for the first time. 
and you know obviously the, the depression was still going on in this country every every couple of days you would you know see some kind of some, some or other atrocity that was going on in in Europe or Japan and you know you were wondering if this would ever you, know, if you, you could transport yourself back to being somebody who was 30 years old you know in 1941 and realizing just how upside down the world was was was, was turning and um you know I really did find myself even just in the context of reading that reading those newspapers, you know, 60, 65 years later, uh, wanting to rush to the sports page just to see what was going on <laughs> and to be able to, uh, to, to, to kind of lose myself. You know, I based it around four seminal events of that year, one of which was, was Whirlaway winning the Triple Crown at a time when horse racing was a huge sport in this country, uh, one of which was one of the most renowned boxing matches of all time, which was Joe Lewis, the undisputed heavyweight champion, uh, fighting Billy Cotton, who was a character who'd been a terrific light heavyweight, decided to fight up. And their first fight is considered one of the two or three greatest fights of all time. And, and the anecdotes available for that fight are just priceless. And the other two events are, of course, the uh, the two that probably are most you know known to sports fans today, which are Joe DiMaggio's hitting streak and Ted Williams hitting four or four or six. And he really was just. Uh, to be able to be able to tell those stories and weave those stories in and around the historical context of the times, it was it was everything that's in my wheelhouse. I think as a writer and a reporter, and I, I, I'm still you know that that book came out uh, 11 years ago, and I'm still fiercely proud of it. I think it holds up, you know, holds up certainly better than the Red Sox Yankees series, the Red Sox Yankees book only because we've gotten now you know 15 extra years of history in regards to the Yankees Red Sox series. And as much as I love the book about the 1912 World Series, I think that's more of a limited uh, uh, audience. I do think the 1941 has brought appeal to anybody who's a sports fan, which is kind of the feedback I've gotten from that book from people who have read it. I mean, you know, it's uh, it's, it's 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 a book that I myself have actually gone back and read cover to cover, uh, and been able to do so without feeling kind of weird that it was my own work because I really do thoroughly enjoy what's in there. It's just it's it's it's, it's very interesting to me. I'm definitely going to have to check that out. Let me ask you this. Now, you've worked, you, you went to school in a small market like Olean and worked there. So you know what that's like, you know, basically Western New York there. You've worked in Arkansas, Kansas City, you know, New York, Newark. Is the New York City media market really like no other? Is it completely a different animal than anything else? Only in the sense of sheer numbers. I think that's the case. I mean, look, with <clears throat> there are still four newspapers that cover every baseball game and cover every, actually six newspapers that cover every newspaper, every Yankees game and every Giants game. I mean, the sheer numbers of it, I mean, and the radio reporters and the TV reporters, I mean, um, you know, that's the difference really. I mean, I remember, you know, whenever I would, you know, cover a Bills game or, or a Sabres game when I was, when I was working only in or covering a Chiefs and Royals game when I was in Kansas City, um, it just wasn't quite as as over the top in terms of the, in terms of the numbers, um, which is which certainly was on one hand was you know allowed you to do, I think in some ways better work easier because there were fewer people who were trying to latch on to people. I mean, when it's three people in the clubhouse, it's a lot easier work environment for not only us but for the players mm-hmm. as opposed to uh, you know what it is in New York where it seems like it must seem like to the baseball players every day that there's an invading army every day at three thirty when we get to the clubhouse or, you know, at you know, four thirty on Sunday after a football game. Um it's just it's it's just the sheer numbers make I think it a less uh comfortable work environment 
for the players. And so therefore it's a little harder for us to do our jobs in terms of trying to get good stuff in, in a comfortable atmosphere. Cause it's you know, anything but comfortable when you're sticking microphones and a guy who's got a towel around his waist. <laughs> I grew up in Buffalo, but you know, I've always been a lifelong Yankee fan and I got a ton of family in New York and New Jersey. And I remember growing up hearing about, you know, the tabloid wars between the New York Post and the daily news. Is that still a real thing? Not as much as it used to be. I mean, look, in, in, in the 70s and the 80s, when uh, it, it really did seem like every back page might determine who was going to survive and who wasn't, right. uh, I think it was more that way. Um, there, there's still a bullying and there's still a lot of competition. There's still a daily battle for readers and for back pages and really the fun part of the job, you know. And But it's, I, I do think it's a little bit more... Um, it's, a, it's a little less desperate than it used to be. Uh, even though, you know, which isn't to say that the business is grand for, for all the papers involved. It's just there seems to be a, a lot less blood spilled uh, than there used to be for whatever the reason. I, th- I, th- I, th- I think in a lot of ways, you know, you have a lot, you know, the, the newspaper folks, I guess, maybe ally themselves more than they ever did before because it's, you always feel like it's either us against the players or us against the radio guys or us against the Internet guys. I don't think that's necessarily fair or true. I just think that that's kind of how it's 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 morphed over the years. There's there's far less blood feuds between the guys, the individual papers, than there used to be. They still exist. They're still around. They're just they're just not as as many or presented presented themselves as often that way. I ask all the sports writer guys who come on this podcast the same question. In, in the business that you work in, you develop some friendships with your peers. Is it sometimes hard to balance you know that friendship or at least even acquaintances? against trying to kick their ass when it comes to getting a scoop or story angle that they don't have? I don't think it's hard because I think we all understand what it is. I mean, I think, I, I, I mean, I, I do have you know, very good friends who I go up against every day and, you know, I damn right. I want to be better than them. Um, it, it, it was especially unique, you know, from, from probably 1998 to about 2002. Uh, I was a lead columnist at the Newark star ledger and Adrian Wojnarowski was the, Lee Thomas, the Bergen record. So the two biggest newspapers in New Jersey. And, you know, we were going at each other literally every day over the nets or the devils or whatever. Mm-hmm. And that was unique uh, because, I mean, really, Adrian is one of my closest friends in, uh, in, in life. And, you know, I'm godfather to his son. And we were going at it every day, literally doing the same job. Right. Trying to do it differently. I mean, now he and I still compete on a very peripheral level in terms of, you know, he covers the NBA. I cover New York sports. I mean, occasionally our paths cross, <clears throat> but it's different. And I, but, but I still have other friends and you know, who do the same job I do. And, and uh, you know, I, I, I think one of the gifts of reaching a level of satisfaction in your career like I have, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm at the, if, I, if you tell me, if you, if you tell me my future is that I'll retire from the New York Post, I'll be perfectly, perfectly happy with that as my career path. But so, uh, you know, being satisfied with where I am, content with where I am, you know, I can appreciate the competition, but I can also appreciate when a colleague of mine, like Steve Politi in Newark or, you know, Dave Lennon at Newsday, when they write a good column, and maybe when they write a better column than I do on a given day, I mean, I'm still going to be angry because I think I was beaten, but I also be able to appreciate the, you know, the, the good work that went into them pre- pre- preparing a good column which is something I don't think I was ever able to do. Certainly not my twenties, probably not my thirties. It probably took, you know, getting into my forties and getting into a place where I was really comfortable in the job of Matt to where I could, you know, still be competitive, but also be willing to tip my cap 
you know, to guys who, you know, who do, who do, who, who, you know, do the job, you know, every bit as good as, as I want to do it. There's been so many box office movies out there about the world of newspapers. Is there any out there that kind of stand out to you as being semi-accurate or are they all kind of like full of shit? In, in, in a lot of ways, you know, I love the paper and I think the paper, uh, the movie, the paper by Ron Howard starring Michael Keaton and Glenn Close and Robert Duvall, uh, captures life in the newsroom as perfectly as can be captured. Um, in terms of the byplay, the exchanges between editors and reporters, the anger, the adrenaline rush of getting after a story. Um, and it captures all of that perfectly. It just got the ending incredibly wrong because it's just, it's just inaccurate. I mean, if, if, if what happened at the end of the paper, which is that they get the wrong story and the first edition of the paper happens, then you fix it in the second edition, then the third edition. <laughs> but that's, that's, a little less, that's a little less dramatic than, than, than you probably had time to explain. So I understand why they did it in, in, in presenting the movie as they did it. But, um, so I think that, 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 that if, you want, if you want an idea of what life in the newsroom is like, it's, it's, a, it's a great depiction. Uh, but for me, I mean, the, the gold standard of newspaper movies is always going to be all the president's men because they actually got that absolutely right. Uh, and another favorite of mine is a Humphrey Bogart movie that's a little less known called Deadline USA, uh, which is just a fantastic. It's a very Hollywoodish paper, but a uh, movie rather. But uh, if you ever get a chance, you know, a lot of times you'll 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 see it on on Showtime, you know, late at night or or on USA Network. It's it's worth your time. It's 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 it's, it's Bogart is best playing the city newspaper editor going up against the mob, and it's got the greatest closing line. Uh, of any newspaper ever, which is the uh, the uh, the mob heavy trying to intimidate the editor, saying, you know, the, you know, if you, if, you, if, you, if you publish a story, you're going to be in trouble. But then he hears this noise, and he asks, he asks Bogey, he says, "What is that?" And Bogey puts the phone out to where the press is starting to roll, and he says, "That's the press, baby. It's the press." <laughs> and so I always I always get pretty fired up when I watch that. <laughs> I'm going to have to check that out. Okay, so listen, I mentioned at the top that you've won dozens of writing awards. One of them came just around a year ago when you were honored with the New York Press Club Awards for journalism for your The King Delivers and Weeps, a story on LeBron after the Cavs won the NBA title. Firstly, how to feel to win an award like that? And secondly, an award or not, how much work and pride goes into writing that kind of piece? Well, I, you know, I, I, I always like to laugh about how, how journalists are the most self-congratulatory lot there are, but... Uh, and all that said, I've never turned down an award, nor do I know a journalist who has. That particular award was very meaningful to me because uh, at the same dinner where I, where I received that award, Dan Barry of the New York Times received an award for a different category. And Dan Barry is probably the, 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 the most significant of all uh, graduates of State Bottomature Journalism School. So it was, uh, it was kind of an honor to share the, 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 uh, the night with him that night. Um, but, uh, you know, I was proud to win an award for that story because, you know, one of the things I'm most proud of, you know, of, of the things that I bring to a column is I, I, I do think I'm a very strong deadline writer. Um, as we become more of an internet thing and less of a, <laughs> excuse me, an operation that's based on deadlines, that may become more of a marginalized skill. But as it is right now, we still, you know, concern ourselves with getting stuff in fast and getting it in right. And that was on, written on such a tight deadline. Uh, after the the Cavaliers won the world the world championship in 2016, that's kind of what I really kind of appreciated was the was the notion that uh, that I was able to uh, 
to turn out something in about 25 minutes that was able to hold up, you know, a year later when judges were reading it. So uh, I, I was pretty proud of that. Um, and, uh, you know, I was told a long time ago by one of my mentors in the business, uh, what you should, what you should strive for. He's told me always try to be better than anybody who's faster than you and faster than anybody who's better than you. And, uh, whether, whether or not I've done that or not, that's certainly what I aspire to, especially when I'm running on deadline. You've also won the New York state sports writer of the year award by the national sports media association twice. Not bad, man. Not bad. That's fun. I mean, and I especially, and I, and I really like that award too, because the, 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 that, that one is voted on by your colleagues. So, I mean, it's, uh, you know, it's meaningful to me when, <clears throat> you know, when, when, when other people, you know, who you're competing against, you know, uh, respect you enough to where they're willing to acknowledge your work. That really, uh, you know, that particular award meant a lot to me, a lot to me because if it's me, when you, when, when, when you earn that kind of recognition from your peers, it, uh, it tells you that you're probably doing things the right way. All right, listen, I'm done pumping up your ego here. <laughs> let me let me tell you this, or ask you this, I should say. I saw something with the Beatles in 2017 on Facebook. You ranked the top <laughs> 189 Beatles songs, 189 of them. In case you forgot, you probably didn't, but I'll remind you that your top three was A Day in the Life, Hey Jude, and My Life, Day in the Life being number one. How much time and thought went into doing that? Well, my whole life, because I've been a Beatles fan since I was 10 years old. So I've been, you know, I guess probably, probably judging and appraising them, you know, in, in, in every year since. But, uh, um, I think I did, I think I wrote that in, in because the, uh, you know, Sirius XM was coming out with the Beatles channel. And several years earlier, when they had done the same thing for Billy Joel channel, I had done the same thing with Billy Joel. And I'd actually encouraged a friend of mine who's a big Springsteen fan to do the same thing with Springsteen songs. I would, I've, I've never, I've never tackled the Springsteen list because there's just so many, there's just too many songs, but, uh, uh, yeah, that, so that, 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 that Beatles thing was, uh, was the kind of thing that most people react the same way. Like, wow, or you're nuts. But then of course they want to argue with your choices. Which yeah. is great. And that's one of the great things about ranking anything. And right. you know, one of the things I like to do in my Sunday columns, you know, uh, you know, if I write 50 of those a year, probably 10 or 12 of those every year, is coming up with some crazy list or some crazy ranking because invariably that's going to, you know, bring, you know, make the column interactive because people want to always have an opinion on the 10 greatest Knicks games they ever saw or the 10 worst baseball games they ever saw or, you know, this or that. I mean, it's, and so when you're, when you're dealing with rankings, you're always going to have people who, uh, who are going to have entirely different takes on it. And that's great. Anybody, anybody who was, to me, anybody who was willing to, actually wade through even half my list <laughs> certainly earned the, the right to say whatever they want to, not only about that <laughs> list, but whatever their own rankings would be. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's fun, man. Rankings are fun and people interact. That's the great part of it. Did you overall, did a lot of people agree with you or do, do you think you kind of caught a lot of shit over who was near the top? Probably, probably, you know, it's probably, it was probably half and half. I mean, I, I, I can't, I can't remember the number, but I do know there was a lot of, there was a lot of reaction on Facebook and certainly a lot of, I've gotten a lot of reaction from people subsequently just face to face who would say, man, it's been unbelievable. I mean, I, I think most people have different top five songs because they matter. They're the meanings differ to anybody. I mean, my wife's a big Beatles fan and I mean, she was stunned at the fight, you know, that, that, that those five, I mean, you know, her, her tastes run more toward, as she calls them the happy Beatles. So she's going to be more of an, I want to hold your hand or she right. loves you fan. Um, but, uh, 
you know what? It's you know, you, you're talking about some of the greatest music that's ever that's ever been made in the 20th century, and so it's, you, there's really no right answer and no wrong answer. And that's kind of what I think that's kind of what makes all this fun. But especially when you're talking about something as as with, with such mass appeal as like uh, as Beatles songs. Let's briefly talk sports. I mean, that is what you do for a living and all. I read a column a couple of days ago of yours that the Yanks and the Nationals appear to be on a World Series collision. I bet the TV markets out there certainly hope that you're right. Yeah, look, they're, they're, they're barely at the quarter pole of the season, and a lot can happen. I mean, you know, you hope that guys don't get hurt, but guys always get hurt during the season. So, I mean, a lot of that's going to come into play. You know, and, and they have a lot of players, young players, who you know, haven't necessarily put a lot of years on the back of their baseball card yet. So there's a lot of that that's up in the air. But certainly from what we've seen across the first 40 games, I feel pretty good about the, about the Yankees being a strong World Series contender. And obviously the Red Sox and the Astros are going to have something to say about that. Even the Indians who are scuffling now, I think will be, will be fine come October and will make things competitive. But, uh, <clears throat> you know, that, I think the Nationals are probably more of a reach right now because they, they did scuffle coming out of the gate and they're playing better now. But, you know, they still have a full team going. They still haven't gotten out that yet from Daniel Murphy and, you know, they're, 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 they're actually going to have a lot of competition in the East out of the Braves and the Phillies, and maybe even the Mets might be able to get their stuff together before long. So I think that's more of a reach. But I also think that, uh, you know, certainly the Dodgers aren't going anywhere this year, and, and the Cubs are a little bit down than they've been in the past. So uh, I, I, I think it's as good a chance as any that it's going to be Yankees Nats for sure. Turning in the Knicks, they hire a new coach, David Fisdale. How far off is this team, in your opinion? Do you, and do you think LeBron is a possibility this summer, or no? No, I can't imagine that LeBron's coming to New York. I, I don't think New York appeals to him uh, anyway, in terms of something that he feels like he has to do to complete his career. I don't think he feels that way at all. And probably, you know, in our, you know, in, in, in the, the way that, that that our world is now, he's probably right about that. You don't have to be based in New York to reap the benefits of New York anymore, right? <clears throat> Which is something that Carmelo learned, learned the hard way, I think. Um, and and you know he's, he's he's only he only has a finite number of years left, and I don't think he has any intention of whittling around in a team that you know it, it, like he, they're, they're a playoff team. He's on the team, but you know I, he, they're, they're nowhere near a championship team. And I mean, the problem with the Knicks right now is that you know they're three years away from being respectable, and being respectable means then being able to be competitive in, a, in the same division as the Celtics and the Sixers who are going to be dominant in that division for years to come. That's where, I, where it gets a little, you know, worrisome for the Knicks. I mean, in a lot of ways to me, I said this last week, it, it feels like 1980 all over again. The Knicks are trying to rebuild, but, you know, the Sixers have a, a young, dynamic team that's only going to get better for the next four or five years, and, and the Celtics have a young, dynamic team that's going to win three championships in the next six years, and, and the Knicks are kind of scuffling in the same division, just trying to keep their head above water. And I think that's where they are now. And they're not, they're not, they're not near keeping their head above water yet, but that's where they need to aspire to in year two and year three from now. And that's still only going to be good enough to, to really kind of be a, a secondary or tertiary player in the Eastern Conference. One more sports question, and then we'll wind this down. Were you surprised? I mean, this is kind of old now, but were you surprised that the Jets ended up with Sam Darnold? Because I would have bet my life, say, maybe 24 hours before the draft. There's no way if the Browns don't take him that the Giants don't hit two. For him to end up with the Jets at three, at least in my opinion, it was a shocker. Maybe not in yours. I think it was a steal of the draft. I do. I mean, I, I'm still stunned that, that, that the Browns were with Baker Mayfield. and You know, maybe they'll be right, although they're the Browns, so I doubt they'll be, <laughs> but... 
Uh, I mean, I look at the, the, the thing that made it so unique in, in the New York market was that the, the Giants picked two and the Jets picked three. So the Giants really determined both draft picks in a lot of ways by going the way they went. Um, uh, it really would have been interesting to see what the Jets would have had to do if if um, the Giants had taken Darnold. That was and, my next uh, question. You know, I, I I don't think they would have taken Barkley. They they, they knew it was three to get a quarterback. So so you know, basically, by the Giants picking picking the running back. They all they they, they 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 not only got the player they wanted, but they got they needed to just the opportunity to the player they wanted, which was which was kind of a unique situation. Uh, I, I still disagree with I, I think Barkley's gonna be a tremendous player, but I think Eli Manning is an old thirty seven, who's gonna be an old thirty eight and has been declining uh fairly obviously over the last couple of years and I'm 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 dubious that's going to revert that trend is going to reverse itself and you know, unless you completely thought that that this that this draft was barren of quarterbacks or potentially potential franchise quarterbacks, and that would be a very lonely opinion. Uh, I, I just don't understand how you could how you could turn down uh, getting your next franchise quarterback when the opportunity to get them uh, is, is few and far between. It was a lot of a lot of dreary days for the Giants between Phil Simms and Eli Manning. And all they got to do is look across town, and the Jets are still waiting to try and figure out who the next Joe Namath is going to be. Although I think they certainly have an opportunity to, to you know, to, 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 to you know, possibly reach some success in that regard because it's, you know, I mean, I think Darnold is that good, but uh, it's going to be fascinating to see how those two careers play out over the next five, six, seven, ten years. Bills fans are going to want me to ask you this, and I guess we'll never know for sure. But just let's, for the sake of discussion, let's say Cleveland took Baker Mayfield one, and then the Giants took Darnold two. You're right about the Jets. I don't think they would have taken Barkley. They moved up the three to get a quarterback. So if the scenario had played out where the two choices were Josh Allen or Josh Rosen, what do you think the Jets would have done in that situation? My suspicion is they would have taken Rosen. I think they were higher on Rosen. Um, you know, despite all the stuff that came with them, I think that uh, I think there was a long period of time where they expected to get Rosen. Well, actually, they probably expected to get Mayfield. I, I do think that they expected going in that night that they were going to wind up with Baker Mayfield as a quarterback because they had they had Mayfield ranked higher than Rosen. They just assumed the Browns were going to take Darnold, and you know, were kind of happily pleased when and surprised when 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 Darnold was there for the three. Uh, but if it came down to between the between Allen and Rosen, I think they would have gone with Rosen. Okay, fair enough. I'm not sure Bills fans are going to like that answer. I mean, you're a New York guy. You cover New York sports. And, of course, Buffalo ended up taking Josh Allen or traded up for Josh Allen over Rosen. So, okay, I'm going to end this with a little mini lightning round. This is what I do every week when I have a guest on. just going to ask you a handful of, like, random, completely random questions. And just give me the first answer that pops in your head. You 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 don't need to spend a lot of time thinking. So here we go. Favorite athlete that you've covered? David Cohn. Good one. I like that. Favorite non-sports related activity to do? Non-sports activity. Listen to music. Okay. Favorite city to visit? Uh, San Francisco. Although Buffalo is not, Buffalo is not far away. I should say that. Like, I, 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 I still love going to Buffalo. Do you have a favorite sports movie? Uh, the Natural. Well, filmed in Buffalo, at least parts of it. If you had never gotten involved in journalism in any capacity, for whatever reason, what do you think you may have wanted to do with your life? And I know you wanted to be a journalist since you were 10 years old, but let's just say it didn't happen. What do you think you would have wanted to do? A history teacher and a basketball coach. Okay. If Twitter sent you a note and said, hey, Mike, you're only allowed to follow 
one person on Twitter and one person only, who would it be and why? Well, at this point, we have something to a Twitter account called RFK50. It's because it's been a, kind of a minute by minute, uh, real time uh, of, of the RFK campaign from '68, which has just been—I mean, I'm just obsessed by it. And it's it, it's the greatest of all time. That's probably a temporary account. that's probably going to go away, unfortunately, after June the sixth. But uh, but uh, so if it was just one. If it was one particular person. Um, Gosh, that's a great one. I'll say Bucky uh, um, Gleason. Okay. Three dinner guests from any era. This is the last question, too. Three dinner guests from any era. Who do you got? Sports or just anything? Anything. Anyone, anytime, any era, three guests that you'd love to have dinner and maybe a beer with and have a conversation with, living or dead, any era. John Lennon, Robert De Niro, and... Um, Ike Eisenhower. Beautiful. Mike, thanks for your time today. It means a lot to me. I was really looking forward to having you on the show. Great talking to you, Pat. Thanks for having me on. It's really been a lot of fun. All right, that's the show for today. Big thank you to Mike Vaccaro of the New York Post for being my guest. Great guy and a great gift for the show. Also, of course, want to thank Tone Pucks for doing our Monday thing, although he's hardly a great get. But thanks anyway, Tone. You know, speaking of great gets, I'm not going to jinx myself by naming names here, but as things stand right now, get ready for me to have my biggest guest yet on the show coming up this Thursday. You can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts. Go there and subscribe, rate and review, all that fun stuff. You can also catch this podcast on Stitcher, Tune in or iHeartRadio. If you don't have any podcast apps, you could just get all the episodes right in my website, which is moranalytics.com. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter at PadMoranTweets. One last thing before I get out of here. Just want to send out a happy birthday wish way up there in the sky to my dad. My dad would have been 69 years old today. He's been gone for a very long time. But today's his birthday and I'll never forget that. Miss you, dad. I love you and I miss you. Okay, have a great week, and I'll talk to you guys on Thursday, hopefully with a very special guest. Peace out.